Good evening. Good evening and welcome. My name is Jamie Boskett. I'm the president and CEO here at the Virginia Historical Society and I'm pleased to welcome you to your Virginia Museum of History and Culture and here to the Robbins Family Forum. Uh, it just, it doesn't get old after so many, you know, after two years of not having in-person events to see a full house of people that are here to, to learn and to talk about Virginia history. So just thrilled to have you all with us uh, especially as this, this wonderful annual tradition comes back into flow, uh, the 11th annual, in fact, Hazel and Fulton Chauncey Lecture. Um, Hazel and Fulton Chauncey were longtime members, as many of you know, who had a very special interest in the scholarly work of this institution. Uh, their sons, Edwin Hall and Warren Fulton Chauncey, uh, established this lecture series as a way to encourage that same appreciation for history in history education in particular, in each generation as it goes forward. Uh, I'm so pleased that, that Warren is with us tonight. And if you don't mind, could you stand so we could recognize you, please? We are just so thrilled and so appreciative of your and your family's contributions and commitments to this place and in keeping important lectures like this, the, the, the transfer of knowledge uh, going. So thank you for that, Warren. It's uh, also my real pleasure to express my gratitude on behalf of our board of trustees. And if you look around, you may be seated next to one of them because most of them are here in the auditorium. And so they, along with this incredible talented staff here uh, and everyone really who loves history, who loves Virginia, uh, and who understands the unique and important role a place like this plays in our society. So we express our gratitude to each and every one of you because, and we should do it because it's just a great thing to do. If you are a member, could you raise your hand? Exactly. <laughs> Thank you all. Now, as I turn my attention to introducing our wonderful speaker this evening, this is the perfect moment, if you would, reach in your pocket and silence anything you have that may make noise. We would very much appreciate that. Tonight's speaker is a particularly special one for us here at the museum. Gary Gallagher taught at Penn State before coming ultimately to the University of Virginia where he is the John L. Now uh, professor in the history of the American Civil War Emeritus. He is an acclaimed expert on the Civil War he served on a number of advisory boards and was the president of the Association for the Preservation of Civil War Sites, now the American Battlefield Trust, from 1987 to 1994, and also a trustee of that organization from 94 to 96. He is the author and or editor of too many books to mention here. That alone could be the subject of an hour-long lecture. I don't know where you found the time, uh, but Gary is is just an incredible force in the remembering and teaching of Civil War history, particularly here in Virginia. He's, of course, no stranger to the museum. He's spoken here several times, including during the Civil War 150th, where we saw him on many occasions. But uh, despite that, and at any time, I've always just been amazed with the fresh and compelling look that he gives on topics that we've heard so much about over and over again. Uh, but he has that depth that he brings to these conversations that is what makes him Gary Gallagher. So I want to thank you all for being here this evening, for your support of this wonderful place. If you would please join me in a very warm welcome for Gary Gallagher. I'm going to switch to a different microphone here. And thank you for that warm introduction. It's, it's, it's very nice to be back in this space. Uh, I always enjoy giving lectures here and, it, and I will just second the thought that it's, it's good to be past the point where we can't get together to hear someone speak and talk about things. Uh, it's much better to do it this way than on, dare I say it, Zoom, uh, which is not my favorite thing in the world. I'm gonna talk tonight about the 1864 Shenandoah Valley campaign. Here we are on October 19th, which is the 158th anniversary of the Battle of Cedar Creek, which was the great culminating moment 
of the campaign in the Shenandoah Valley in 1864. The Shenandoah Valley during the war, as everyone in this room knows, most often conjures images of the spring of 1862. Charles Hofbauer's imposing murals that depict the seasons of the Confederacy, which fill a large gallery here at the VMHC, illustrate this phenomenon. For spring, Hofbauer chose as his subject Stonewall Jackson in the valley in 1862. The painting pulses with energy. Jackson sits sturdily aside, little sorrel on rising ground beside what is probably the valley turnpike, while a long line of infantry marches past the viewer. The soldiers strain under a pace that tells on their faces. One man raises his arm in a gesture of respect for his commander, as does a mounted officer whose horse, <clears throat> excuse me, with flared nostrils and open mouth also suggests extreme effort. Most of the infantrymen focus resolutely ahead, their long strides carrying them through the valley's beautiful countryside, past wounded comrades, and into Civil War history as Jackson's fabled foot cavalry. Hofbauer's sweeping images, one of the most powerful in the Lost Cause artistic canon, ascribes a heroic spirit to Jackson and his Army of the Valley, a spirit that captivated Confederates in the spring and early summer of 1862 and lingered for many decades after the war is exemplary of the Lost Cause version of Civil War history. Well, I'm here tonight, as I've already said, to talk about another military campaign in the Valley. I'm finished with Stonewall Jackson in the Valley now, <laughs> at least in any focused way. I'm gonna talk about a more important campaign in the Valley that took place in the summer and autumn of 1864. My talk will have three parts. The first is going to be a brief description of the Valley and its importance. The second deals with the background and the opening moves in June and July of 1864 of this second Valley campaign. And the third explores the culminating phase of that campaign between August and late October. And I'll also in that part of my talk offer some comparative thoughts about Generals Jubilee Early, the Confederate commander, and Philip Henry Sheridan. There is a wall, and I hope everyone can hang in for about 40 minutes without having images to look at and focus on rather than the talk. It's just going to be you and I here together uh, for about 45 minutes, and then a little time afterward to have some give and take if you're of a mind to do that. But let me begin with a few words about the valley's geography, its logistical and strategic importance. The Shenandoah, as everyone in this room probably knows, cuts a fertile rolling slash between the Virginia Piedmont and the rugged mountains of the state's western regions. It's a landscape of breathtaking beauty and agricultural bounty. It extends from the Potomac River to beyond Lexington in Rockbridge County. With the Blue Ridge Mountains to the east and the more imposing Alleghenies to the west, the valley runs from the, <coughs> excuse me, southwest to the northeast and drops gently in its course to meet the Potomac, which means that an individual traveling toward the Potomac goes down the valley, an odd circumstance in a world where north is almost always up. Between Strasburg and Harrisonburg, a distance of about 50 miles, Massanutten Mountain divides the valley. West of Massanutten in the valley proper, the North Fork of the Shenandoah makes its lazy way toward the Potomac, while to the east, the South Fork runs through the Luray or Page Valley, on its journey to join the North Fork at Front Royal. The lower valley, as the northern portion is known, includes the broad expanse between Williamsport, upstream from Harper's Ferry on the Potomac, and Strasburg, as well as the land west of Mount <coughs> Massanutten, as far south as Woodstock. The logistical value of the valley during the war scarcely can be overstated. Its agricultural riches help sustain Confederate forces in Virginia and especially those in the Army of Northern Virginia. The most important wheat growing area of the Upper South through most of the antebellum period, it also led Virginia in production of grains and cattle and contributed substantial quantities of leather, wood products, woolen textiles, and whiskey. No rail system served the entire valley, but three lines provided links to Northern and Eastern Virginia. Most important was the Virginia Central which traced an arc from here in Richmond northwestward to Gordonsville and Charlottesville, crossed the Blue Ridge near Waynesboro, and ran to Stanton, the largest rail depot in the valley, and then on to Covington. 
The Manassas Gap Railroad connected Mount Jackson and Strasburg and Front Royal to Manassas Junction via Thoroughfare Gap in the Blue Ridge Mountains, excuse me, the Bull Run Mountains. And the Winchester and Potomac Railroad, which was a spur of the mighty Baltimore and Ohio, the B&O, penetrated the lower valley from Harpers Ferry to Winchester, supplementing these railroads as an artery for the movement of logistical goods and armies was the macadamized Valley Turnpike, which provided all weather service between Stanton and Martinsburg. The valley loomed large as a strategic avenue for either side to mount a threat to the western flanks of Washington and Richmond. All of the valley below Strasburg lay north of the United States Capitol, a Confederate army marching down the valley, screened by cavalry in the gaps of the Blue Ridge, might easily cross the Potomac and descend on the federal capital from its right rear. The B&O was vulnerable to Confederate attack where it dipped south of the Potomac between Harpers Ferry and Martinsburg. And moreover, any federal fans, uh, advance through North Central Virginia along the Origin Alexandria Railroad would present an open right flank to Confederates lurking behind the passes of the Blue Ridge. Similarly, Federals moving up the valley could cut the Virginia Central Railroad and thereby disrupt the flow of supplies to the soldiers defending Richmond. The valley is hugely important, hugely important during the war. Let's go to the first phase of our 64 Valley Campaign, June and July. On June 12th, 1864, Robert E. Lee summoned Lieutenant General Jubal Anderson Early to discuss an important assignment. The principal armies in the Eastern Theater had been battering one another for five weeks from the Rapidan, Rappahannock River frontier to Richmond. But Lee had another part of Virginia in mind in summoning Early. He wanted Early to take the Second Corps on an independent operation far removed from the rest of the Army in Northern Virginia. Since early May, Union General-in-Chief Ulysses S. Grant had sent two forces into the Shenandoah Valley to disrupt Confederate logistical production and cut the Virginia Central Railroad. Grant had the Virginia Central much on his mind uh, through these months of 1864. The first of those two expeditions under Major General Franz Siegel had ended in defeat at the Battle of Newmarket on May 15th. The second, commanded by Major General David Hunter, had penetrated the Upper Valley to Lexington, burned the Virginia Military Institute, then turned southeastward to strike Lynchburg, which was a center for communications, transportation, and hospital activities. Lee's instructions to Early on June 12th laid out several objectives. I was directed to move for the valley, Early wrote shortly after the war, to strike Hunter's force in the rear and, if possible, destroy it, then to move down the valley across the Potomac and threaten Washington City. On June 15th, Lee reported to Confederate President Jefferson Davis that Early had departed. Although worried about detaching one of his three infantry corps in the face of Grant's powerful army, Lee stated that, quote, success in the valley would relieve our difficulties that at present weigh very heavily upon us. Early's movement to Lynchburg signaled the opening of what would become the longest, largest, and as I've already said, most important military campaign waged in the Shenandoah Valley. It extended over four and a half months and divided into two distinct phases. During the first phase, Early evoked memories of Jackson's celebrated successes in 1862. He defeated Hunter outside Lynchburg on June 17th and 18th and pursued the Federals toward West Virginia before marching rapidly down the valley and crossing the Potomac River into Maryland on July 5th and 6th. Then Early's Army of the Valley, which numbered approximately 14,000 men, descended on Frederick, Maryland and defeated a ragtag Union force under Major General Lew Wallace, uh, who hadn't written Ben-Hur yet, in the Battle of the Monocacy on July 9th. Two days through stifling heat took the marching Confederates to the outer fortifications of Washington, D.C., where they probed the Union lines, shelled the city. No other significant Confederate force, either before or after, approached so close to the United States Capitol. Early soon realized that he could not overpower the city's defenders, who'd been reinforced by veterans from the 6th Corps in the Army of the Potomac, and on July 13th and 15th, the Confederates withdrew southward across the Potomac back into Virginia 
to the vicinity of Berryville. By any measure, Early had completed a successful month's campaigning. He touched on one element of that success in a humorous comment to Staff Officer Henry Kidd Douglas on the evening of July 12th. Major said early, we haven't taken Washington, but we've scared Abe Lincoln like hell. And in fact, the presence of the rebel army had rattled Abraham Lincoln. On the afternoon of July 10th, as early soldiers moved toward Washington from the Monocacy, the president wrote to U.S. Grant and essentially asked him to come to Washington to save the city with a good part of the Army of the Potomac. Now, what I think, stated the president, is that you should provide to retain your hold where you are, certainly. Bring the rest with you personally and make a vigorous effort to destroy the enemy's force in this vicinity. Grant answered that night from City Point, assuring the president that he had already directed enough troops to Washington to protect the city, which was correct, and mindful that a more substantial diversion of strength from Petersburg to deal with early could undermine civilian morale in the United States. Grant added, I think on reflection that it would have a bad effect for me to leave here. Now that is understatement. It would have had a very bad effect if Grant had hurried north. Lincoln soon calmed down, but as his private secretary John Hay recorded on July 11th, the president's only concern seems to be whether we can bag or destroy this force in our front. Jubal Early is much on Abraham Lincoln's mind. R.E. Lee rendered a positive verdict about Early's operations a few days after the Army of the Valley returned to Virginia. He assured Secretary of War James A. Seddon that Early had saved Lynchburg, cleared the lower valley of Federals, crossed the Potomac to Menace, Washington, and now stood guard in the lower valley. The value of the results obtained need not be further stated at present, Lee concluded is there are yet more expected to come. Early continued to operate along the Potomac frontier through the rest of July and into August. Elements of the Army of the Valley struck at the B&O Railroad, skirmished with Federals in several places in Virginia, West Virginia, and Maryland, and through these activities inspired hope in the Confederacy and sowed frustration among people in the United States who had expected a quick end to the war when Grant took the field against Lee in May of 1864. Confederate bureaucrat J.B. Jones, who kept a diary here in Richmond, noted in mid-July, quote, the excitement on the news of our successes in Maryland is intense, and a belief prevails that great results will grow out of this invasion of the country held by the enemy. Two events in late July helped persuade Lincoln and Grant to allocate greater resources to the Valley. At the Battle of Second Kernstown, fought south of Winchester on July 24th, early defeated Brigadier General George H. Crook, and then followed the retreating Federals all the way to the Potomac. More ominously, on July 30th, some of Early's cavalry under Brigadier General John McCausland burned Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, after the city's political leaders refused to pay $100,000 in gold or $500,000 in greenbacks as compensation for private property destroyed by some of Hunter's Union. For this act, I alone am responsible, wrote a defiant early in his 1866 memoir, that is, the burning of Chambersburg. I'm perfectly satisfied with my conduct on this occasion. He also said that he wasn't surprised that the Yankees didn't pay the ransom because, as he noted, all they care about is money. And so he just went ahead and burned the town. Hunter's actions against civilians and Early's retaliation revealed that the war in the Valley had taken a more brutal turn, a trend that would accelerate over the next three months. And that leads us to the second phase of this campaign in August and October. That phase of the cam campaign began on August 7th with Major General Philip H. Sheridan's appointment to head Union forces in the area. Grant wanted Sheridan to apply continuous pressure on early. Wherever the enemy goes, let our troops go also, wrote Grant. Once started up the valley, they ought to be followed until we get possession of the Virginia Central Railroad. He really wants the Virginia Central Railroad because he knows if he gets it, that takes the sustenance from the valley out of the mouths of Lee's soldiers. The general in chief minced no words in explaining what lay in store for the valley's economy. 
In pushing up the Shenandoah Valley, he told Sheridan, it is desirable that nothing should be left to invite the enemy to return. Take all provisions, forage, and stock wanted for the use of your command, such as cannot be consumed, destroy. Grant harbored few doubts about the outcome of the impending campaign. He confided to his friend William Tecumseh Sherman, who's operated in Georgia, of course, that he had, quote, put Sheridan in command, who I know will push the enemy to the very death. Early in Sheridan would settle the fate of the Shenandoah Valley between August and the late October. Early boasted the more substantial record and reputation at that point. He was a West Pointer. He graduated 18th of 50 in the class of 1837, and he had won the trust of his army commander. Robert E. Lee displayed rare affection, <clears throat> excuse me, for the notoriously profane and sarcastic Early. Early was often called the most imaginative cursor uh, in the Army of Northern Virginia. And what really has always bothered me is that people will say that and then they don't give a single example <laughs> of what kinds of curses might have brought that palm his way. <laughs> but there's no doubt that he cursed. And Lee called him, Lee gave affectionate nicknames to two of his subordinates in the course of the war. He gave one to James Longstreet, my old war horse, and he gave one to Jubal Early, my bad old man. <laughs> Early was older than Lee, and Early did a lot of the things that maybe in his dark moments Lee might not have minded doing himself. But anyway, he didn't do them, and Early did, and he called him my bad old man. Between 1862 and 1864, Early had often exercised responsibility at a level beyond his rank, at times directing a division while a brigadier and a corps while a major general. In late May 1864, Lee secured Early's promotion to lieutenant general and assigned him to replace Richard S. Ewell at the head of Stonewall Jackson's old Second Corps, the body of troops that would constitute the heart of the Confederate force in the Valley. Early cut a remarkable figure. If we had an extra hour here, I could just uh, overwhelm you with comments about Early, but I'll give you, if he was about six feet tall, badly stooped by arthritis, he reminded one soldier of, quote, a plain farmer looking man. At the time of the Valley campaign, another witness left a vivid description. His voice sounds like a cracked Chinese fiddle and comes from his mouth with a long drawl accompanied by an interpolation of oaths. To ward off the cold, he wears a striped woolen skull cap down over his ears, a cloth overcoat striking his heels and leggings wrapped from the feet upwards as high as his knee with white tape. He's as brave as he is homely and as homely as a man as any man you ever saw or will see. <laughs> Not a very martial figure, I would say, that early cut. He'd fought in all of the Army in Northern Virginia's campaigns prior to this deployment to the Valley and received praise from both Lee and Jackson for his actions at Second Bull Run, Antietam, Fredericksburg, and Chancellorsville. By the summer of 1864, with Jackson long dead and James Longstreet absent with a serious wound incurred at the Wilderness on May the 6th, Early was the best corps commander in the Army in Northern Virginia. Jedediah Hotchkiss had been at Jackson's side in the Valley Campaign in 1862, and with Lee's army at Antietam and Gettysburg during those two invasions, he was well-equipped to offer a comparative evaluation, and the perceptive cartographer wrote in mid-July that Early's recent campaign, quote, was by all odds the most successful expedition we have ever made into the enemy's country. The Times of London took a similar view in suggesting that Early's campaign in June and July proved, quote, the Confederacy is more formidable as an enemy than ever before. Sheridan's career prior to August 1864 was less impressive. A West Pointer who graduated in the bottom third of his class in 1853, he had a well-earned reputation for personal pugnacity, aggressiveness on the battlefield, and like Early, profane outbursts. I think not perhaps as artistically constructed as Early's, but nonetheless profane and memorable. He was about five feet, five inches tall, well below average height, and he struck many who saw him as oddly put together, although some of this might be the typical anti-Irish sentiment that was floating in the ether in the mid-19th century. A staff officer penned a memorable portrait of Sheridan. The general was short in statue, square-shouldered, muscular, wiry to the last degree, 
and as nearly insensible to hardship and fatigue as was consistent with humanity. He had a strangely shaped head with a large bump of something or other, combativeness probably, behind the ears. His face was lighted up by uncommonly keen eyes, which stamped him anywhere as a man of quickness and force. Sheridan had seen a great deal of action, fought well in the Western theater as a colonel of cavalry before crafting a more mixed record, heading an infantry division at Stones River, Chickamauga, and Chattanooga. He impressed U.S. Grant at Chattanooga with what one historian of the battle called, quote, an enthusiastic pursuit of the enemy when everyone else seemed content to bivouac. Thereby, he gained invaluable entry into the future general-in-chief's circle of favorites. Summoned east with Grant in the spring of 1864, Sheridan took charge of the Army of the Potomac's Cavalry Corps. His record during the Overland Campaign was mixed at best. More than once during the battles of the wilderness in Spotsylvania, his cavalry failed to carry out essential missions of screening the Army's movements and gathering intelligence about the enemy. Sheridan seemed intent on using the troopers more like infantry, and he clashed openly with the Army commander, George G. Meade. Grant prized Sheridan's eagerness to pummel the rebels, a trait that stood out amid a culture of caution bequeathed to the Eastern Army by George Britton McClellan and still very much in place in 1864. Sheridan led a raid on Richmond that resulted in the mortal wounding of Jeb Stuart at the Battle of Yellow Tavern on May 11th, a heavy blow to the Confederacy. <clears throat> but that activity against Richmond also left Meade without sufficient cavalry strength at that point of the campaign. The most careful student of the Overland campaign concluded that Sheridan, in his ability to win a point against Meade, had severely handicapped Grant in the fighting at Spotsylvania. But Sheridan enjoyed Grant's respect, obviously, at the time at which he was given command in the Valley. The same was not true with President Lincoln and Secretary of War Edwin M. Stanton, who both initially opposed the 33-year-old's appointment because of his youth. Lieutenant Colonel Theodore Lyman of Meade's staff offered a sound assessment on August 11th, describing Sheridan as, quote, an energetic and very brave officer. However, this command is a very large one, added Lyman in reference to Sheridan's previous service, larger than he ever had before. Grant soon converted Lincoln, who pronounced himself satisfied with Sheridan and, as he put it, hoped for the best. <laughs> Most Northerners probably would have seconded Lyman's belief that Sheridan should do better than his predecessors in the Valley, uh, that is, Siegel and Hunter. That's not a very high bar to cross, uh, but might ultimately find himself out of his depth at the head of an important army. A relatively uneventful five weeks ensued after Sheridan took charge and then the action picked up. During that five weeks, Early maintained an aggressive presence in the lower valley, continuing to interfere with the B&O's presence uh, with its operation, which is crucial. The B&O is really an important railroad for the United States. He also protected the upcoming harvest and served as a galling irritant that contributed to deepening pessimism across the United States about prospects for victory. This is the moment in the war when United States civilian morale reached its lowest point, July and August, 1864. Hopes had been so high when Grant took command. Grant hadn't taken Richmond, he hadn't smashed Lee, and now a rebel army got to the outskirts of Washington and is operating along the Potomac frontier. This is very bad for morale in the United States. <clears throat> Excuse me. While Early is doing all of those things, Sheridan was very methodically putting together what he would call the Army of the Shenandoah, and which would number a force that would number about 40,000 by mid-September. The opposing armies in the valley contended for immense stakes as they got ready to, to confront one another. Sheridan succinctly described the situation in his memoirs. The possession of the Valley of the Shenandoah at this time was of vast importance to Lee's army. Its retention, besides being of great advantage in the matter of supplies, <clears throat> would also be a menace to the North difficult for General Grant to explain, and thereby add an element of considerable benefit to the Confederate cause. Beyond logistics, events in the Valley would affect Lincoln's chances for re-election in the November canvass. 
an absence of success against Early, coupled with the grinding stalemate between Grant and Lee at Petersburg, could diminish the political impact of Sherman's triumph at Atlanta. He had captured Atlanta of the first week of September 1864. Democrats would benefit from a perception that the conflict might drag on interminably. Republican failure at the polls would inspirit the Confederate people, compromise the U.S. war effort, and place at risk all, <clears throat> all progress toward emancipation on the Union side. The protracted drama in the Valley came to a rousing and bloody climax between September 19th and October 19th. During those four weeks, the Shenandoah represented a true second front in Virginia, providing a landscape across which 60,000 soldiers marched and fought, characterized by rapid movements, important battles, and the systematic destruction of logistical resources. The duel between Early's and Sheridan's armies contrasted sharply with the siege of Petersburg, which to observers behind the lines offered scant evidence that one side or the other had seized the upper hand. In the valley, Sheridan's striking victories at Third Winchester on September 19th, at Fisher's Hill on September 22nd, at Tom's Brook on October 9th, and at Cedar Creek on October 19th broke Confederate military resistance. And the burning carried out in late September and early October left much of the area an economic ruin. Well before Sherman's march to the sea, laid a heavy hand on the interior of Georgia, <clears throat> Sheridan's army in the Shenandoah implemented Grant's strategy designed to wreck the economic infrastructure that fed, clothed, and armed Confederate soldiers. Unequivocal in its military and economic outcomes, the 1864 Valley Campaign also boosted Lincoln's reelection chances, a fact that rendered it all the more decisive. Let me offer a few comparative observations regarding the 1862 and 1864 Valley campaigns. I think they're instructive. In terms of scale and casualties, the 1864 operations dwarfed those waged by Jackson and his federal opponents between March and early June 1862. The meticulous Jed Hotchkiss, we should all be thankful for Jed Hotchkiss and his diary, which has been published. It's a wonderful diary. He prepared maps for both Jackson and Early. Hotchkiss estimated that the Confederates under Early marched 1,670 miles between June and early November 1864, a distance roughly two and a half times that traversed by Jackson's command in the valley. As for casualties, Jackson lost approximately 2,750 men during his campaign and his federal opponents about 5,500. Sheridan's losses in a single day at Third Winchester, and then again in a single day at Cedar Creek, roughly equaled the toll among all Union forces during the entire 1862 Valley Campaign. The Butcher's Bill for combined Union and Confederate forces in 1864 exceeded 25,000. Strategically and politically, as I've already suggested, the impact of operations in 1864 far surpassed that in 1862. Although Jackson's Valley campaign almost surely will continue to inspire more popular attention, anyone seeking the moment when the Shenandoah loomed largest in the history of the Civil War should look to the summer and autumn of 1864. Let me close now with some thoughts about the relative performances of Early and Sheridan in the Valley. The campaign affected the two men's reputations as you all surely know, in strikingly different ways. On October 21st, 1864, Abraham Lincoln asked some serenaders outside the executive mansion to, quote, give three hearty cheers for Sheridan, as well as three cheers for General Grant, who knew to what use to put Sheridan. The next day, the president sent a warm note to little Phil. With great pleasure, I tender to you and your brave army the thanks of the nation and my own personal admiration and gratitude for the month's operation in the Shenandoah Valley and especially for the splendid work on October 19th, 1864. From Georgia, Sherman acknowledged how success in the Valley had boosted Sheridan's reputation, affirming that among Union generals, quote, Grant, Sheridan, and I are now the popular favorites. 
and he probably would have preferred to say Sheridan Grant and I are now, I'm excuse me, I, Sheridan and Grant are now the popular favorites. It's always a nice to muff a line that you think is going to get a laugh from an audience. It's very, there you go. In sharp contrast to Sheridan's ascending star, Jubal Early's reputation dropped precipitately after his defeats in the Valley. In mid-September, a Georgia newspaper had observed that, quote, old Jubal Early, or as General Lee calls him, his bad old man, has won a name during his sojourn in the Valley of Virginia, of which he is well worthy. Several defeats later, a woman in Albemarle County, Virginia, voiced a common sentiment in her diary. Oh, how are the mighty fallen. General Early came in town this evening with six men, having been hid somewhere in the mountains. He used to be a very great man. There we go. That's the reaction I wanted there. <laughs> Did the two generals' performances in the Valley justify such perceptions of brilliant success and ignominious failure? Using the campaign's ultimate result as the criterion for assessment, the answer must be yes. Sheridan vanquished early in utterly convincing style. But a look at various factors complicates the picture of a triumphant Sheridan contrasted with a thoroughly beaten early. Numbers played a crucial role in the events of September and October and also figured prominently in post-war accounts. At the outset of the campaign, the Army of the Shenandoah comprised approximately 35,000 infantry and artillery and 8,000 cavalry for a total of 43,000. Early's Army of the Valley consisted of fewer than 9,000 infantrymen and artillerists, <coughs> excuse me, and between 3,500 and 4,000 cavalrymen for a total of not more than 13,000. As Sheridan prepared to move against his opponent, concluded one leading student of the campaign, the Federal Army enjoyed a superiority of at least three to one. The odds had not changed much by the time of Cedar Creek. Sheridan's army there fielded 22,250 infantrymen, 7,500 cavalrymen, and 1,850 artillerists who served 90 guns on October the 19th, with another 4,000 infantry within easy supporting distance. Early's infantry numbered between 9 and 10,000, with support from 3,000 cavalrymen and 1,100 artillerists who served 34 guns. Totaling at most 14,000 men, the Army of the Valley at Cedar Creek confronted a foe approximately two and a half times its size. We all know that debates about numbers raged after Appomattox between Federals and former Confederates, with lost cause writers often attributing Southern defeat to the Union's advantage in men and materiel. Jubal Early, who stood second to none in shaping the lost cause interpretation, larded his own writings and speeches with allusions to powerful federal battalions. Much of the Confederate fascination with numbers has been dismissed by scholars as special pleading by old rebels who sought to rewrite history, most obviously by playing down the importance of slavery in the sectional breakup and in the creation of the Confederacy. In the case of the 1864 Valley Campaign, however, numbers did loom large. Early's memoirs hewed much closer to reality than either Sheridan's or Grant's in dealing with numbers. He gave his strength just prior to Third Winchester as 12,500 to 13,000, and Sheridan's is, quote, at least 35,000, estimates almost identical to those in the best modern scholarship. For Cedar Creek, Early thought his army fought with about 11,000 men on the field and another 1,700 cavalry nearby, total of about 13,000. That's only about 10% lower than the actual numbers had been. Sheridan's memoirs, in contrast, greatly underestimated his own force and overestimated Early's at the outset of the campaign. The Confederate Army at this date was about 20,000 strong, wrote Sheridan, and the force that I could take with me into the field numbered about 26,000 men. Because he made no further estimates of strengths before he narrated the Battle of Third Winchester, Sheridan left readers with a sense that he had outnumbered Early by only about 6,000 men at that battle, giving him an advantage of one and one-third to one rather than the true ratio of three to one. Although disingenuous in dealing with numbers in the valley, Sheridan came closer to the truth than Grant. I love Grant's memoirs. They're the best memoirs by anybody on either side during the war and really a classic retrospective account. 
this is one of the worst parts of Grant's memoirs in terms of accuracy. The commanding general's memoirs advanced the unsupportable claim that each side initially fielded about 38,000 troops in the valley. But the superior ability of the national commander over the Confederate commander was so great, remarked Grant in a well-executed jab at Early, that all the latter's advantage of being on the defensive was more than counterbalanced by this circumstance. Grant went on to make the amazing statement that Early, quote, lost more men in killed, wounded, and captured in the valley than Sheridan had commanded from first to last. Well, Confederate casualties from the beginning in August to the end of October probably fell between nine and 10,000. At its weakest, Sheridan's force in the field during the same period numbered more than 30,000. Grant thus either tripled Confederate casualties or undercounted federal strength by two thirds. He did so most likely by way of getting even with Early for pieces the latter published in the 1860s and 1870s, suggesting that Grant had triumphed over Lee only because a preponderance of manpower and materiel worked decisively in his favor. Early cut Grant no slack whatsoever. He compared him, talking about him and Lee one time, he said he didn't think it was right to compare them. It would be like comparing the majestic pyramids that rear in their majesty along the Nile to a pygmy perched on the shoulders of Atlas. <laughs> well, if you're U.S. Grant, <laughs> that might make you think that maybe Jubal Early someone you might like to counterpunch, and he certainly did in his memoirs. More unaccountably, Robert E. Lee also failed to grasp the odds against Early. Perhaps Lee's own disadvantage vis-a-vis -vis Grant colored his attitude. Deployments to the valley weakened his position at Petersburg, and Lee surely resented having to deplete his army to bolster another theater. On October 12, 1864, he insisted, in a very clumsily phrased communication, that Early possessed the means to defeat the enemy. I do not think Sheridan's infantry or cavalry numerically as large as you suppose, he wrote to Early but either is sufficiently so not to be despised and great circumspection must be used in your operations. I can imagine early reading that and thinking, what? <laughs> and reading it again, what? <laughs> what is he talking about? In contrast to what Sheridan, Grant, and Lee wrote during and after the war, many participants and observers in the Valley and elsewhere exhibited a very good grasp of the relative numbers. On the Confederate side, for example, Brigadier General Brian Grimes informed his wife in late August, quote, the enemy outnumbers us three to one. It's about exactly what it was. At about the same time, the Richmond Dispatch informed readers that Sheridan's entire force in, entire force in the valley amounts to 41,000 men. Almost exactly right as well. Jed Hotchkiss avoided offering specific numbers, but insisted that Early's army always faced very great odds. He wrote on October 11th that Sheridan, quote, has added thousands upon thousands to his army from every household in the North. The enemy is determined to do all that numbers can do. Even on the federal side, many realized that Sheridan faced a much weaker foe. In early August, Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells observed, quote, the Confederate force is small, the scare great. Surgeon General Daniel M. Holt of the 121st New York Infantry, which was a Sixth Corps unit, felt ashamed in August that Sheridan's army seemed unwilling to engage the much, much less numerous rebels. Shall I say that we retreated before an inferior force? He underlined retreated. It looks like it, surely. An artillery officer with the Army of the Potomac who followed the action in the valley avidly from a distance marveled at, quote, the audacity of Early attacking an entrenched force three times his own number at Cedar Creek. However participants in memoirs reckoned the respective strengths, it is beyond dispute that Sheridan's numbers afforded him the luxury of recovering from tactical and strategic missteps, while Early's relative weakness left him no such margin for error. Early's tolerances are much finer than Sheridan's in that regard. Both of them logged good and bad days in the valley. Sheridan's greatest virtue lay in applying continuous pressure against the outnumbered rebels. And better than any other army commander on either side during the war, Sheridan used his cavalry far more numerous than their rebel counterparts and with superior mounts and weapons as shock troops against infantry. Nobody does that 
in the Civil War. Sheridan did it repeatedly, most notably at Third Winchester and again at Cedar Creek when they helped organize powerful counterblows at Cedar Creek, I mean, and sealed the Union victory. As one New York, <clears throat> I'll just say again, I mean, this is really, I, the first time I really went through this and really saw how Sheridan had used his cavalry in the valley, it's kind of astonishing. The cavalry is basically irrelevant on Civil War battlefields. The battle starts, the cavalry goes off and does something else. And I know John Buford is there at Gettysburg for an hour on July the 1st. We all know that. But for the most part, when the real fighting begins, the cavalry goes somewhere else. That is not the case in the valley. Sheridan used his cavalry brilliantly in the valley. His magnetic leadership also created a tremendous bond with soldiers in the army of the Shenandoah. Most famously, when he rode from Winchester to Cedar Creek on October 19th to organize his powerful counteroffensive there after a very bad morning for the Federals. As one New York soldier observed at Cedar Creek, General Sheridan has the full confidence of all his men. And when he came down the line, the air rang with cheers. A new spirit entered us, and we were determined to drive the rebels back or die in the attempt. Little Phil's behavior that day inspired the famous poem, Sheridan's Ride by Thomas Buchanan Reed. Came out in 1864, it lengthened the ride to 20 miles, really about 12, but 20, he's a poet. We'll cut him, you know, do whatever he wants. It's like a novelist. If you're a novelist, you can do any damn thing you want. <laughs> Uh, and I guess that's fun. <laughs> and I'm not going to say what I was thinking next. I'm going to move on to say that on the negative side, Sheridan botched his army's advance at Third Winchester, crowded them all into one place in a very clumsy way. He took credit for George H. Crook's tactical plan at Fisher's Hill, Sheridan's own plan at Fisher's Hill. The initial one was a really dumb one. And he stubbornly refused to carry out Grant's instructions to sever the Virginia Central Railroad between Stanton and Charlottesville. He would not do it. Grant tried and tried to get him to do it, and he wouldn't do it. Throughout the campaign, as already noted, his ample cushion in numbers allowed him to recover uh, from bad starts and missteps. As for Early, he underestimated Sheridan at the outset scattering his own force before third winchester that almost brought uh, that almost ended the campaign there he drew a poor line at fisher at fisher's hill placing his weakest units at the most uh vulnerable point he didn't really have enough men to cover the whole line but he did put the weakest people at the worst point he also felt contempt for his admittedly inferior cavalry and failed to utilize his mounted units to the best advantage and finally he seemed overcome with caution after his brilliant opening tactical offensive at Cedar Creek. That offensive, which involved a daring night march around the nose of Massanutten Mountain and coordination among several widely separated attacking columns, marked a high point for Old Jube. It's a complex and superbly executed maneuver that ranks a most, most, among the most impressive of the entire war by any general on either side. In the aftermath of Cedar Creek, Early's capacity for poor judgment surfaced in spectacular fashion. He issued a statement addressed to the soldiers of the Army of the Valley, dated October 22nd, in which he excoriated the men, directly questioning their courage and attributing to them full blame for the debacle at Cedar Creek. Had you remained steadfast to your duty and your colors, read one typical passage, the victory would have been one of the most brilliant and decisive of the war. Had any respectable number of you made a stand even at the last moment, the disaster would have been averted and the substantial fruits of victory assured. The text quickly became known far beyond the Army of the Valley, provoking widespread and mostly censorious reaction. The tone of Early's language caused offense, even if some of what he said had merit. One Georgia soldier expressed a combination of insulted pride and anger that surely would have resonated among his comrades in the Army of the Valley. Early had, quote, made a sweeping accusation of cowardice and bad conduct, and he thus endeavors to shift the responsibility which rightly rests upon him alone. Early's primary contribution in the Valley was clear. He occupied a great many United States soldiers in that theater throughout the late summer and autumn. 
With a force that never numbered uh, many more than 15,000, he compelled Grant to detach for lengthy service away from Richmond and Petersburg, one of his most trusted lieutenants, the veteran Sixth Corps, and two-thirds of the Cavalry Corps. These men joined many thousands of others brought together under Sheridan in the Middle Military Division. In all, between 85,000 and 90,000 Federals stood watch one way or another against the Army of the Valley. Jubal Early and Philip Sheridan labored under vastly different circumstances in the Valley. Early fought from a position of relative weakness, coaxing the maximum from his small army. His actions in the Valley marked him as an energetic and resourceful officer entitled to a position just below Stonewall Jackson and James Longstreet on the roster of Confederate Corps commanders. In terms of ability in semi-independent operations, only Jackson excelled early among Lee's lieutenants. Yet he suffered total defeat in the end, sent home from the army to watch the final scenes of the conflict in complete disgrace. Sheridan proved himself a dependable army commander who implemented most of Grant's strategic design and thereby significantly furthered the Union cause. He relied on his preponderant strength and especially his marvelous cavalry to overcome tactical mistakes as well as deliver, to deliver powerful blows. Although he never devised a plan equal to Early's at Cedar Creek, he nonetheless used personal charisma to motivate his soldiers in ways that Early could not begin to duplicate. A coveted Major General's Commission in the regular army gave tangible evidence to the gratitude of his military and civilian superiors. More than that, Sheridan's success in the Valley propelled him to a position in the Union pantheon behind only Grant and Sherman. For the rest of his life, he enjoyed substantial fame as a member of the triumvirate credited with orchestrating final United States victory. And he would follow Grant and Sherman as just the third officer to wear four stars as general in chief of the United States Army. One comparative question lingers. Early proved he could accomplish a great deal with minimal resources in the 64 Valley campaign. Sheridan proved that he could do the same with ample resources. If given Sheridan's advantages, it seems likely that Early would have achieved even more. Whether Little Phil could have done as well in Early's place, I think, is more problematical. Thank you. I don't have a watch, but I know we have at least some time for, and I don't know who the timekeeper is, but if you have questions or comments or want to argue about something or dispute something, uh, please have a go. And could you raise your hands for us? We There's have some mics running around. Hand right here. You mentioned that he took the fight to the general population by destroying their barns, their crops, and taking their animals and everything. Should he be judged on that alone also, just like the Russians are being judged today by what they're doing to the population of the Ukrainians? Right, I've, I've did quite, well, everybody heard the question because it was, it was, this is not, the fact that, that what scholars call the strategy of exhaustion, that is a strategy that is designed not to kill the enemy soldiers, but to uh, undercut the logistical capacity of your opponent to maintain soldiers in the field. That's something that we, we usually associate it with Sherman's March to the Sea. That's what everybody thinks. That's when that hard kind of war started. In fact, it's, it's been going on through the whole war. It becomes a little more systematic in the Valley. But it's no, I mean, the Federals, when Hunter went south toward Lexington, he burned stuff too. He burned VMI, he burned houses, he took things. They, it's not something that, it's not brand new in the Valley. It's more systematic uh, in the Valley. And it doesn't target civilians. It's not total. They're not targeting civilians. They're not killing civilians as they go through the valley. They don't even burn all of the things that allegedly were burned. I was on a tour in the valley once with a local guide. Uh, Bob Crick and I were giving a tour, and we were. And this person was giving some discussions as we went along. He talked about how Sheridan burned every barn and every mill and every this and every that in the valley. And then just as the bus was, he, before we got to our destination, he said, but we're going to have dinner tonight at a really great antebellum mill. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, I wish I had this whole thing taped so I could play it back to you, buckaroo. 
so it's not really it the, the war hasn't burged into some unknown territory here and it never reaches the point here that it reached in Missouri and in parts of Kentucky and in some of the mountainous regions of North Carolina and Virginia and elsewhere with guerrilla war but they they, they do lay, lay a heavy hand on the logistical resources of the valley uh, but I don't I think that's it, it's just uh, I don't think it's total war I don't think it was beyond the bounds of war I just think it's a place where the war had gotten by that point. And some would argue in talking about that, that it's a more, uh, that it's actually a, a better way, instead of killing as many people as possible, just destroy the things they need to keep fighting and the war will end and fewer people will have been killed because you destroyed the resources. Something you can argue about endlessly, historians argue about it endlessly. Was it total war? Was it not? Was it this? Was it that? If you were a farmer in the valley, I think you would have considered it total war. Here come the Federals. I used to have a barn. I don't have a barn anymore. The mill I used to use to, uh, that's gone now too. My animals are gone. They took what they wanted. They killed the rest of them. Pretty total for me. Pretty total for me. I think the perspective would have been that it was a brutal and total kind of war. But it wasn't brand new by any means. But it was before Sherman. Everybody who talks about Sherman uh, should rewind to the valley and see all of that happening earlier. Is there only one question in this vast room? There's one. Yes. Uh, could uh, could he have taken all his forces and attack the Richmond from the rear instead of uh, leave the valley and go? Uh, I'm sorry, help? I missed the first part of that. Could could he left the valley and gone to Richmond and hit uh, Richmond from the rear? You mean could Sheridan have done that? Yes. Yeah. The point isn't to get to Richmond. The point is to take the valley out of the war that's the point of the campaign in the valley that's what grant wanted siegel to do that's what grant wanted hunter to do and that's what sheridan finally did it's just take the valley the valley had been there much i mean there's tremendous action all through the war in the valley is all as you know the armies move up and down the valley there's a lot of guerrilla activity in the valley but it continued to provide sustenance significant sustenance via especially the virginia central railroad to the army in northern virginia and part of Grant's plan against Lee is cut Lee off. The reason he's cutting all the roads and railroads that go to South to North Carolina and eventually go westward toward Lynchburg, the whole point is to make it impossible for Lee to sustain his army. That's what the siege at Petersburg turns into. Well, this is part of that broader strategic goal that's just going to happen a long way from Petersburg. And it's amazing to me that Sheridan wouldn't cut the railroad. I just, there's even, there are direct exchanges between him and Grant about this. The, the, Sheridan didn't get to Charlottesville until March of 1865 when he dropped by. Uh, Custer, they dropped by for a while in Charlottesville. Another question there. Yeah, um, you know, you can say the same thing about Lee. What, which thing? <laughs> what you're saying about uh, Juval Early. You know, they have, Indoor, uh, inside lines, they knew that terrain, they had a, a population that would tell them where the enemy was. So th they they had certain uh, advantages that the Federal never did. I think a better way to describe Sheridan is put him in Harrisonburg and have Early come and attack him in, you know, Union uh, uh, states. I mean, Lee did well in Northern Virginia. Every time he left the area, he didn't do as well. So couldn't win on the road. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 and that the same thing with Early. And the one question I have is the quality of Early's troop at the beginning compared to the quality of his troops at the end. Well, the quality of his troops at the beginning. In the first, he didn't suffer many casualties in the first phase of the campaign. So he essentially has the same troops at the end of the campaign, reinforced by Kershaw's division as the campaign unfolded and by more cavalry from the army in Northern Virginia as the campaign unfolded. His cavalry got a little bit better. His numbers didn't go way up. It's not the quality, he has veteran infantry. He has good infantry with him and he has good subordinates. He has some of the best younger officers in the Confederacy, Robert Rhodes is with his army, Dodson Ramser's with his army, John B. Gordon is with his army. He has very good division commanders with his army, better ones than Jackson had in 1862. One of the huge advantages that the Federals have in 64 that they didn't have in 62 is that they have a unified command under Philip H. Sheridan. Sheridan is in command in the Valley. 
1862, you had a gaggle of union commanders. You have banks and you have, I mean, we, let's, we don't want, it's too heartbreaking to read their names because it just makes you weep that they would ever become generals. <laughs> it helped Jackson that he was up against a bunch of people who would have fit in in the bar scene in Star Wars. That helps <laughs> if those are your opponents in a campaign. Early is facing a very good soldier who's in overall command and has, there's no way to finesse being outnumbered two and a half or three to one. He, no matter what he does, he can't finesse that. Your example of having him attack Sheridan at Harrisonburg, he, that's in effect what he does at Cedar Creek. It's Sheridan's army that's in place at Middletown. Sheridan thinks the campaign's probably over. His army is in place there and Jubal Early with a much weaker force assaults it with this, very complex and effective initial round of assaults that routed two thirds of the Union Army. It's an amazing morning spite at Cedar Creek on October 19th. And then of course it unravels completely. Sheridan comes back and I mean, the things are already pretty stable by the time Sheridan got back, but what he did was organize a powerful counterattack that just uh, completely reversed everything that had happened to that point. Here comes a microphone. What role, if any, did the troops who fought in the Battle of Newmarket, the several hundred that I think were there on the You mean the side, BMI? Well, you can include them if you wish, yes. Yeah. But what, what role did they play in this larger campaign that you've been describing? They, they play, they, the, the cadets from VMI don't play a role uh, with, with Jubal Early. Some of the other troops, uh, end up uh, working with Gabriel Wharton. I see Jack Davis right here, who has just published, just co-edited one of the best collections of letters by any Confederate general or Union general who fought during the Civil War, Gabriel Wharton's letters, and also his wife's letters to him. It's a remarkable back and forth correspondence between a couple uh, who are in a position to see a lot of things and comment on them in really interesting ways. Uh, Gabriel Wharton is with Jubal Early. Uh, he's one of his, he commands a very small division in the Battle of Cedar Creek, but the heart of Early's force throughout is the second corps of the army in Northern Virginia. That is the, that's the real basis of his force. He has some of the Valley Cavalry, which he's, I mean, the Valley Cavalry is not much to write home about. He was completely contemptuous of them, referred to them as buttermilk rangers. He said what they were best at was stealing buttermilk uh, from farmers, but it was when it came to fighting, not so good, perhaps. He also, the poor Laurel Brigade, which was one of his, which was one of his cavalry units, he said, "The Laurel is a running vine, isn't it?" <laughs> so anyway, not a lot of love lost between Early and his cavalry, but the heart of his army, the heart of his little army, an army put it in quotation marks. It's a corps, basically, a small corps, because it's a corps at the end of the Overland campaign. That's when they go to the valley. The Confederate Corps have about twenty thousand soldiers in them at the beginning of the Overland campaign. By June twelfth. After Cold Harbor, it's a much diminished core, but that's the core of his army, first to last. Okay. First, thank you, Dr. Gallagher. Um, I feel like I should confess to something up here, but. <laughs> well, maybe let me give you an opportunity. Um, first. Don't push your job? luck. <laughs> Um, well, you are, I think it's fair to say, the greatest proponent of taking students to learn history where it happened on the battlefield parks. So I wanted to ask you, do you think that the Shenandoah Valley Parks are doing a good enough job of expressing the significance of the Shenandoah Valley campaigns to the overall war effort, or could they be doing a better job of that? I, I, I would love to give you a really good answer to that, but my honest answer is I've, I retired four years ago and haven't taken students anywhere since then, so I've never used... I never took students to the valley as one of the places where I would take them. So I just, I can't, I really am not in position to comment on it. I love the work that they've done in the valley. And the, I mean, 30 years ago, there was virtually nothing protected in the valley. A little bit, it, uh, there were some at Cross Keys, some at Port Republic. What's happened in the valley has been amazing over the last 30 years. You can really take people to sites there now and do things you never could. I mean, it's really remarkable what's happened in the Valley over the last 30 years. And I think that the organization's doing a great job there, but act, but I've not done anything on the ground, so I can't really talk about that. Folks, let's thank Gary. He's gonna be upstairs signing books if you wanna talk to him some more up there.
Thank you, Gary. Oh, okay. I heard a voice. Thank you.